This episode of Timucua Presents is supported by the National Young Composers Challenge, which supports and showcases the next generation of U.S. composers at their annual Composium. More information at youngcomposerschallenge.org. This is Timucua Presents. I'm David McDonald. Last week, I got to chat with Orlando Philharmonic Orchestra music director Eric Jacobson. He told me all about his transition from cellist to conductor, concert programming, and his experience getting to know the people and places of Orlando. He's as thoughtful and open as he is talented. And if you're listening in Central Florida, you're going to be really proud. If you're listening elsewhere, you might be a little jealous. Before I play that interview, first, I have a few favors to ask. First, share this podcast with just one friend. I mean, you can share it with more if you want, but really, just start with one. I want to make everyone feel like they're a part of the arts community here in Central Florida, and I need your help to reach them. Second, please rate and review this show in iTunes or Google Play. It takes just a few seconds, and it really helps new listeners to find us. You can also get in touch with us and tell us what you think directly. I'm at Dave McDow on Twitter. That's D-A-V-E-M-A-C-D-O. And you can email me at podcast at timukua.com. Third, Come check out a show. This one's easy. May 20th is the Accidental Music Festival Marathon. It's going on all day, 1 p.m. to 10 p.m., and it's going to feature local performers of all kinds. It's totally free, family-friendly, pop in and out anytime you want. It's an all-day thing. It's the second year that it's, it's happened, and it's, it's just crazy fun. It's a great way to introduce yourself, your friends, your family to some really amazing music being created right here in Orlando. Details at accidentalmusicfestival.com. And now, my conversation with Eric Jacobson. First of all, thanks for sitting down and doing this. Thanks so much for talking with me. This is something I've been wanting to do for a while. When I first heard your name associated with the Orlando Philharmonic position, I'll be honest with you, I was not aware of your who conducting. Who is that person? Well, no, no, no. I totally <laughs> knew who you were, but as a cellist. So uh, is that, this is where things started, I assume, is with playing cello. Yeah. And I was pretty familiar with your playing, especially with Brooklyn Rider and a little bit with the Knights. Mm-hmm. How did the transition from cello to conducting happen? Yeah, it's it's a great question and one that I'm not sure I totally I'm because I'm in the middle of it right now. I'm not sure I totally understand it all. I'm yeah, I'm a cellist uh, by training, by by love. Um, I started when I was four years old. My parents are both musicians. My brother, four years older, is a violinist, and started playing cello. Went to school, uh, you know, like a um, a music school when I was 10 or 11 or so called School for Strings in New York. And I liked it. But I wasn't like, wow, okay, this is going to be the thing that I do. I didn't know that. My brother, at age seven, my little little, my little Colin was like, I'm going to be a violinist at age seven, like <laughs> to know that, which is pretty pretty amazing and rare for a seven-year-old to make such a decision. Well, but and to stick happens. with it as long as he has. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Because like every seven-year-old wanted to be, you know, Mickey Mantle. Yeah. <laughs> My brother also wanted to be Mickey Mantle. Okay. Yeah, there was, don't, don't think that, don't think that by deciding you want to be a violinist, 
you don't end up sitting at the window with a violin in hand looking out at people playing baseball with jealousy. Right. Like, that exists. Okay. It's just, you know, like, how does it all work and what do we need to do to get there? So around the age of 11, 12, 13, I started going to this music camp called Greenwood. Loved it so much. Fell, fell kind of in love for the first time and started realizing that these were the people that I loved to surround myself with, these musicians, um, even though we were not all you know, musicians to be, and very few of the people that were at that camp ended up becoming professionals. Like, this is, this thing that we're doing is really special. And that was just around the time that I started saying, I should get better at this. I should get better at this. I should get better at this. So I started going for it. I'm going to be a cellist. I'm going to be a cellist. Went to Juilliard for college. And, you know, in pre-college, oh, so pre-college Juilliard is like this high school program yeah. on Saturdays. And I would go, and just around the age of 14, right right around the time where I was really doubling down on, on cello and becoming a cellist, theoretically trying, um, we start, I started taking this conducting class that I kind of insisted upon. A few of our friends, uh, we had this conductor at school who was conducting the youth orchestra, and we're like, we love him, we love him, so great. Can he teach us? Can he teach a, uh, a conducting program? So we started giving lessons, and I didn't think I was gonna become a conductor, I just thought this was a really cool thing to do. And wow, so you learn the technique. And actually, you know, the truth is, you know, you could learn how to do a 4-4 pattern conducting, you know, one, two, three, four. You could learn that in an hour. It's not going to look pretty, and it'll take years to make it the way you really feel comfortable with it, but you can do it. You know, playing a down bow on the cello will take years to make a decent sound. It's a, it's a totally different mind frame. Um, when I went to Juilliard, I really focused very deep on cello. Almost did no conducting um, in in both mind and in actuality. Um, and right around the time I got out of, out of school, two groups were sort of becoming more formed, and those are the ones you mentioned, Brooklyn Rider, which is a string quartet that I have with my brother, and The Knights. The Knights actually predates Brooklyn Rider. They were, we started sort of actually at the end of high school, it was just a group of friends, string players who had an orchestra together, a chamber orchestra. Which um, is, inc- I should say, incredibly ambitious for a group of high school students. Absolutely. It was totally ambitious. However, I don't think we necessarily had the goal to be touring in Europe. We're like, we were just, hey, let's play some music together. Oh, there's a concert that, you know, we could make a literally $100 each. for. It's funny. That know. sounds a lot like the start of a rock band. Exactly. Like a garage rock band. Like, you know, it would be fun if we all hung out and just made some cool sounds together for a few hours. That is the that is the word we use to, des- the words we use to describe it. We called ourselves a garage band. Because this is fun. And we're, we're trying to do something together. And s- the, the process of actually rehearsing in the garage was almost more important than the concerts in the early days. It still is. I mean, we feel that the rehearsal process is... Um, almost the meat of what we do. Um, so I got out of college, started playing in Brooklyn Rider, went really deep. Um, I think for after, maybe after the first two years of just sort of getting the quartet going, we were playing 100 concerts a year within the course of probably 150 days. Um, really, really tight touring. So doing you know five to six concerts a week and throwing in a recording project somewhere in there. And that was, you know, that was my... That was my thing, and I will say that that playing in a string quartet not only was one of the greatest joys of my life, 
but maybe the greatest education musically. I mean, I couldn't have played in quartet if I didn't have all the education before. However, I don't think I could conduct the Orlando Philharmonic if I didn't have the quartet experience because what a quartet is, it's just it's a microcosm of the orchestra. You have just like a, uh, like a vocal quartet is a microcosm of a chorus. You have four voices. You have low, middle, middle, high, and that's it. And that's so simple. You know, what does it take to build a house? You have the structure, you have the walls, you have the roof. That's it, you know? And then everything is kind of special in between that. And But to understand the special, you have to know what the, the grounding and the... the, the uh, the tops and the bottoms are, you know, and, and to listen for those things. Absolutely, because that's in a chamber ensemble. Like that's everybody's responsibility in a way that it, while it, you know, really should be in a large ensemble, is kind of not how we understand it coming up in music. Like you're kind of just told what to exactly. do. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which is that's that's a tricky. That's a whole other conversation. But so you, asked, the question was, how did I become a conductor? How did I make the transition? Um, the joke answer is that narcissism really got the best of me, um, which is <laughs> probably a little true. No, I don't know. Um, playing in a quartet cello is one of the most just thrilling things. I, I love the idea of, of being that member of the group. I love the symphonic repertoire so deeply. I mean, the idea of getting to conduct a, a, a blank symphony is enough to get me excited. The idea that this weekend I'm conducting Mahler's Second Symphony, like I'm getting chills thinking about it because I feel so lucky. It's such, such an honor. Um, it's repertoire that I want to see from that position. I, for a long time, I thought, oh, you know, I, I would love to be uh, the principal cellist of the blank orchestra. I really wanted to play in the Met Opera for a while. That was my father played in the Met Opera for years, and I thought, oh, I just to just to play a couple operas, you know, over the course of five years. Or well, you'd play like thirty operas, forty operas. Um, that would be just such a great experience. But I just didn't end up wanting to go that direction. I've never taken you know like an orchestral audition. Um, and more or less, the course was uh, I got out of school, started playing in the quartet, started playing, uh, started. Uh, conducting more with the Knights, started doing some relatively bigger concerts. The Knights were touring in Europe. We recorded two albums for Sony, and yet I didn't really admit that I was a conductor. I always said, I'm a cellist, and I conduct on the side. And it's a little intense to say that when you've done things that are theoretically, you know, um, accomplishments, big accomplishments. But yeah, I, and a young conductor would look at those things and say, oh man, I wish I could do those things. Right, and I actually got into trouble once because there's someone, a conductor said to me, well, you're, you're, you're a conductor, you know? And I said, no. And he's like, how dare you? I'm like, well, because I'm a cellist. And he said, but that's, that's so rude. Like for people who are actually trying to do like embrace it. And that was one of the times that I got confronted with, you know, just say what it is and deal with it. Because, you know, my father played in the Met Opera for years. He actually really disdained a lot of conductors because conductors can, well, you can, conductors can get away with murder because it's hard to actually talk back to a conductor. Conductors can be rude. Conductors can be egotistical and narcissistic and all those things. And my father de dealt with that on a very deep level. And uh, it, was, it was an issue. It was a problematic thing. Um, so I actually think that my father might have made it uh, impossible for me to come out <laughs> so soon saying I'm a conductor. Um, okay, so then I remember, so um, the 
my my manager, the person who manages the Knights and Brooklyn Rider and Silk Road, and we met her because she also manages Yo-Yo Ma and Gil Shaham, said, you know, Eric, if you want to do this, I went to her and asked her, what do I do? She's like, if you want to do this, you have to get, you have to be, you have to do some type of training. Um, I had not done a schooling for conducting. I just kind of learned it on the job, which is actually generally how most conductors in the previous century did it. Um, and even actually quite a bit today. But I, I so, so I went to Aspen for a music festival um, and I was a conducting fellow there. And that was, that was a good experience. It was very, very hard in, in that it was actually one step, another step towards saying, yes, I'm a, I'm a conductor. And it's, I still stutter when I say it. <laughs> um, and right before I came and had my audition in Orlando, say a year before, I actually got to the place where I could say, I'm a conductor. And that, I think, is one of the only reasons that I was able to get this job. Because you can't, you can't embrace, you can't take on such a huge um, task without actually saying exactly what you want to do. And so it made, it all came around that right time where Orlando had this opening and I was able to step away from the Freudian problems of throwing out my father figure and and not wanting to be you know a conductor and embracing new music that's another thing my father doesn't really uh, get into so much but actually <laughs> ever since Brooklyn Rider and the Knights um, he really has come around because he just ends up being exposed to it so much. And we all know that more or less, if you're exposed to anything, you start liking it more, just like green eggs and ham. about um, bringing new music into an institution uh, that has a history like that coming in? Because obviously when you are with Brooklyn Rider, you guys pick whatever, you know, you, you want to do. And the Knights, you're, like, you, you're a pretty small group and a pretty new group, and you kind of create your own identity. And uh, Orlando Philharmonic has... A, an identity that kind of predates you. Mm, absolutely. So how do you how do you think about kind of working in in that space and also bringing in something new that is yours? Sure. Well, just a a quick brief on both Brooklyn Rider and the Knights regarding programming. I think Brooklyn Rider uh, quite often would program concerts that um, were uh, more geared on the new music front and used that as sort of the thing. There were often, we often did large classical works as well. And the Knights, I feel like, is more specifically um, really talking about cross-generation. So, you know, very, more often than not, we will play a, a large piece by, you know, one of these composers that you know. We just did a concert this past weekend with Vivaldi Gloria and this little Brahms uh, song. This was with um, the San Francisco Girls Chorus at the Kennedy Center. And those were our sort of our older pieces. The Vivaldi's about 26 minutes long and the Brahms is about four minutes long. And tying that in with a new piece by Lisa Bialava, a new piece by Aaron J. Kernis, and a piece that the Knights wrote together, the concert is weighted um, 
by about two thirds to one third new to old, but it worked um, in our minds. And you know, sometimes it works. You know, you you could you could play with programs, you could listen to the program all the way through, and you could think about it. And my brother and I obsess over programs to, I mean, to an extreme degree, almost to a fault. I mean, I would say to a fault at times <laughs> because we could circle it so much. We have a call scheduled for tomorrow morning at eight o'clock to talk about uh, two programs coming up. Uh, so okay. I will go back to just programming nights programming. We did get pulled in directions, and that's just how it's going to always be because presenters think of you in different ways. So I remember playing at Carnegie uh, two, three, four, four years ago, the first time the, the quartet played at Carnegie, and they wanted us to play all new music. They didn't want us. To, we we offered a, a late Beethoven quartet. They're like, no, Brooklyn Matter. They're a new music quartet, and we're not. But we also probably played 70, 80% new music, but it wasn't the thing that we only did. Um, and actually it was like, no, no, let us, let us do this. This is the program we want to do. This is the program we're playing. And with the Knights, um, it, splits the, it splits depending on the presenter. And, you know, you have a presenter in like UC Santa Barbara or you have a presenter in um, uh, Texas or you have a present, and everyone kind of sees things differently. And, you know, how we fit into their series. And honestly, the great thing is, is we, we want to fit into everyone's series, but we do want to do it on our own terms in the program that we're working with. In Orlando, the challenge is, um, is, not, that, is not the history, because I'm, I'm such a... Um, I, I mean, I, in some ways, I'm a conservative when it comes to classical music. I love looking back and I feel like that's what I use the word conservative for like you know you're looking at I want to play Beethoven as close to the way Beethoven would have liked to hear it and Bach and I and I want to be in that tradition I want to be so steeped in that tradition at the same time if you think about how Beethoven wanted to hear his music well then you should think about how composers want to hear their music and I prefer that the dialogue is not new music old music but music and to do that, you actually end up having to justify certain things. Uh, next season, the 25th anniversary, is chock full of so many new things that I'm so excited we're doing. But at the same time, we're also doing, you know, Beethoven 9, Dvorak New World, and Bartok uh, Concerto for Orchestra, which some people still think is new music. Uh, it's not. It's so old. So old and so wonderfully worn in such a beautiful way. That's a, that's a great answer because I think it also speaks to the breadth of the new music that you're involved in, you've brought to the OPO and the other performances that you give, is that when you do new music, there is all kinds of things that are both the kind of more angular out there uh for lack of a better word, less accessible. I mean, I hate, I don't have a better word. Um, and then also stuff that's very kind of informed by popular sensibilities. And, and I know you've worked with a lot of um, kind of musicians that live in between the, the pop world and the art music world, like, you know, Sufjan Stevens and 
um, you know, Bryce Dessner and, uh, you know, you mentioned Lisa Bilava. Yeah. It, um, one, one of my favorite Brooklyn writer recordings is with Bela Fleck. Oh, yeah. Um, he's one of my favorites, but oh, I'm, I'm, so, a, I'm a huge Bela Fleck so, nerd. You know, a new album of theirs just came out with the new Brooklyn writer without me, with a new cellist. So this is, this is I, I, I have not listened to this yet, but it's on my list. It's okay. on my to-do list. I think, I'll, I'll send, maybe I have it. I don't know. <laughs> well, so I, I'm thinking of an older one, maybe from like sure. 2013 or yeah, something that like was that. The, that was the one that we did with Bela. That was so much fun. Okay, can I tell a story? Sure, please. So Bela came to uh, Brooklyn to rehearse with us. Um, we generally rehearse at my house in Brooklyn. Uh, Brooklyn Rider did. Um, and uh, it was the first time we met. We invited him to come hang out with us, talk about the piece, sh- show us some sketchings. And then three months later, we were going to meet in Minnesota at, um, at the music festival that my brother and I uh, and the members of Brooklyn Rider started um, about 15, uh, 11, 12 years ago. And uh, so he comes to Brooklyn, and he goes to the, you know, the hipster coffee shop right down the street. He walks in with his banjo, and he orders a coffee. And the guy's like, "Hey, man, is that what's that on your back there?" And Bela's like, "Oh, it's a, it's a banjo." And the guy behind the bar was like, "Oh yeah, you play banjo like that guy, Bela Fleck." <laughs> <laughs> and Bela, <laughs> Bela looked at him and said. No one plays like Bela Fleck. It's <laughs> 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 such a Brooklyn happening. That's such a Brooklyn happening. someone like Bela who is not in the classical scene but then makes a transition to try to write something in the classical scene and does with with great success I guess in some ways you'd call that uh, closer to the mainstream than classical music though at the same time you know he's 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 got his niche as well everyone's got sort of their their way and their market obviously Bela has a huge audience but um, I think Music that represents um, emotions is music that we want to hear. You know, we want to we want to hear music and we want to perform music that touches people in a sincere way and not a surface way. And even sometimes music that touches people on a surface way is cool too. And of course, there's a time for any type of this music. Um, I think the choice of how you program uh, concerts is very different than necessarily just like saying you're going to go, oh, I want to listen to something on YouTube right now because you're just going to find the thing that you want. Um, the difference between um, it, like finding music that is grittier or uh, you said less accessible um, or more angular, you know, in some ways actually the Berg Violin Concerto, a piece that's 80 years old, is harder for people than a lot of the music that's written today. And at the same time, then you have sort of this generation of people who remembers those types of sounds, like um, sounds that are, they're not, they're not 12-tone the way that like uh, Dan Schoenberg or Carter's like 
12 tone and hard uh, hitting in that way. It's lyrical and we still make our make our way through it in different ways. Um, but of course, I think the the tr I mean the truth is most music that's being written and performed today is not it, it's post minimal I mean post modernist and some of it is post minimalist and it all kind of comes together I don't know in forty years what we're going to look back and talk about this period and I don't know the music that's going to last I mean I know the music that I think should last and some that probably will just go away as every generation has those types of uh, music that comes and goes but I bet I'm wrong. I, I would assume that in the moment you're right about one or two things, and then, no, you know, this this outlives this, and uh, you know, people think, oh, Beethoven, you know, no one knew him in his time, but not true. You know, Twenty thousand people showed up at his funeral. That's a lot of people to know about one guy dying, uh, a composer, and I think I think there's I th I think we're in the middle of it. A kind of an amazing time when composers are truly embracing what they want to write right now. And I, I don't think that everyone uh, in the last 60 years was necessarily writing the music they wanted to write, but that they were taught to write and they thought they should write. And I think that has a lot to do with like post-war anti-nationalism and the way of actually coming together and being um, a language that actually is flattened across all cultures and I think now not that music is nationalistic now but there's more specific colors like you can't it's very hard to say about Babbitt Carter and uh, even you know any any of the, that world of music like oh this sounds like I mean you could say it now sounds American because you know it sounds American but the, the themes, the things that you that keep on popping to our mind don't necessarily represent nationalism. Well, and I think it's funny you say that it doesn't sound American. I think if, if you heard somebody who'd written something that sounded like that today, you'd be more likely to say that it sounded European. <laughs> right, absolutely, because of the heavier, or the, the, the that type of music that's being written in Europe yeah. right now, right? Uh, so it's so I, I really like your connection to programming there. It, it's, I think, something that speaks to the way it comes across in your performances is very authentic or, or genuine, I guess, because a lot of times when you hear classical musicians try to do things that touch on popular styles in some way, it does, it really kind of comes across as this pale imitation of, of pop music, kind of this like pandery thing. And there's, I think, something about the way that you surround the, the program or kind of infuse the program with Brahms and Vivaldi that you mentioned earlier, Beethoven, late quartet or something like that. And, and the way that you present it feels like you're saying that, that these are maybe not a equivalent in every way, but in some way are valuable Absolutely. in an equal way. That, that is not always, I think, the case when, when we see that kind of presentation. Right, yeah, I think there's a, there is a you, could, you could really do a disservice to news, new music by programming. You know, I, in general, I feel that one thing that's problematic is when programs are so heavily on new music that your ears become um, uh, dull to certain fascinating things. And I personally, I like, I like to meet, eat a meal well, except for pork, I like to eat a meal that has many different tastes going on. I mean, I could eat bacon and pork 
loin and and pork belly and that'll be just fine but anything else i want to see okay what are we having so there has to be you know if there's some type of salad and there's some type of meat you want to have vegetables that sort of fit into that world and if you're going to have a dessert how does that fit into what you've had you know um and i feel sometimes we're like oh we're going to play new music and and we're going to present it in a way that's just boom boom and it's not necessarily the concept of these pieces follow each other well. Like Brahms into Aaron J. Kernis felt really good, and Aaron into this piece that the Knights wrote together was great. Lisa Bilava into Vivaldi Gloria was one of the most amazing things because Vivaldi, the Gloria, Gloria was originally written for a group of fe- uh, girls uh, from, for, from an orphanage, and the idea that Lisa was writing this piece, it happened to have this text of this 19-year-old girl living in Montana in the turn of the last century, very, s- sounding so American, so Walt Whitman, that the pieces went together so well. I, I think those are the things that, that we need to do more of. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about your experience so far in Orlando. Uh, I make no claims to being an Orlando originalist. I've only been here for about five years, so don't take it as a slight when I refer to you as a relative newcomer. I consider myself a relative newcomer. Um, what's your experience been like in the last couple, two, three years being around here and and being a part of the, the Orlando arts community? Yeah. Well, first of all, I love the city. I mean, just, you know arts community, uh, food community, culture, everything that's going on, I'm just having a great time, and I know my wife is too. We both love living here. Um, it's such a special place, actually. Not, you know, of course, you could make the joke and, oh, the weather's great, which it is, but it's, you know, we just have a, a, such a good time here. I, I gotta say, as I've mentioned food like six times already in the last four minutes, um, we, we, we cook a lot and we eat a, we eat a lot and we cook a lot and um, the the food scene here is great I mean the restaurant scene is wonderful but also I just feel like the two or three really fresh places that are open all the time and then the farmers markets it's about as fresh as I've been able to find you know when you're in like uh, you know Santa Barbara or something it's like okay yeah the, there's a food scene there that's pretty incredible but I feel like the the all the vegetables that we're able to get are so incredible and then there are these things like the fleet farm uh, system that's you know we actually have applied but haven't heard back yet where they co- you know people come and they um, farm in your yard and they actually bring that food to restaurants and they that kind of stuff is just so unique and it happens in other cities of course but it, it just feels very real here um, and we've just really embraced the place, and I'm so happy um, because you know you this this is this is this is the job that I got, and thank God that it's a place that I love to be, and thank God it's a place that my wife loves to be. Wow, that's lucky. <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny that you say that because um, you know when when I first heard that you got the job because of all the other things that you're involved in, I wondered like how much time you were going to spend here. Cause obviously right. there are 
tons of music directors who don't live anywhere near where they where where they work. Right. Um, and I, I was. I wasn't sure whether you were gonna, you know, kind of fly in for the shows and 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 head out again, or whether or something else. And so it's really cool that you're you're here so often. Um, I know you're still doing a ton of shows and traveling a lot, um, but it's it's cool to be a part of the community a little bit more. Yeah, it felt like it felt like what it felt like one the community needed it. And I'll tell you this, so. Last year, my last year with with Brooklyn Rider, um, I think we probably, I don't know, we probably played, say, 80 shows, and probably in 60 different cities in the course of four months, or maybe less than that. Jeez. And, I mean, I'm, I'm fine on the road. I have no problem day after day traveling. Um, Aoife is currently doing that most of her life you know she's she's touring two-thirds of the year and generally speaking she's in a city for one to two days and that's intense and when when I made the decision to be here I had, I had told Brooklyn Rider I was leaving the quartet prior to getting this job but it was a related you know it's like okay I'm gonna if I don't if I don't get Orlando I'm gonna try to do something else and I need that time and uh Boy, the quality of life of being in my house for these months while while performing just has changed my my entire thing. And as I say, and I'll say this again, I don't mind being on the road. You know, I'm on the road thirty weeks of the year, something like that, and I'm into it. I'm I love it. But the idea that this morning, you know, I'll go and I'll open. Uh, the coffee that I that I recently got at Lineage was a great coffee place down the street, and I I measure it with like a scale, and then I grind it, and I don't have to do it with a hand grinder, which I tore with often because I wanted my fresh grind, and I have my pour over kettle, and I, boy, that makes me feel so grounded, <laughs> um, and then to be able to go do a Mahler rehearsal after that, I feel better. I think I'm going to perform better, whether that's true or not. Actually. Uh, they're jokes, like Leonard Rose, the great cellist, the, the teacher of my first teacher, uh, supposedly was quoted saying, oh, I played my best concerts in my life when I either had that horrible tooth problem or I was going through my divorce. And you're like, wow, that's that's an interesting statement about suffering and the so idea... It's kind of dark. It's very dark. He was a dark guy. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea of, like, suffering makes emotions greater or something. <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, but it's, it's, it, my point is it's great to, to have you in the community. Do you, what do you see your role in the Orlando arts community more broadly? Obviously, you have a very precise set of responsibilities yeah. at the Orlando Philharmonic, but do you see any responsibility to the kind of arts community beyond that? Absolutely, and I've just enjoyed every experience that I've gotten sort of to do these like collabor collaborative things, um, and I feel like most of the arts organizations that we've had talks with that we're planning to do things with in the next few years, I, th I think they're going to be incredible. Um, luckily, and, and so happily, the people that are in charge of so many different organizations in town are great, and great colleagues and people that you want to work with and looking forward to all of those things. And it's also a way that the orchestra, once again, steps outside of 
what one would necessarily define as a circle that we operate in, whether it's, you know, Mahler and Beethoven symphonies, but no, it's, you know, working, doing Shakespearean stuff with Beethoven and Shakespeare uh, words mixed together because there are connections, or is it um, actually creating a new work with, uh, with poetry outside of ourselves and doing it with the rep or, you know, something like that. Those are ideas that are always being talked about and you know, the, the, the best thing is if you throw out tons of ideas and you start thinking, you start thinking, you start thinking, things start sort of narrowing and you find the things that actually distill in a good way. How does the orchestra as a whole relate to the community then? So you, you mentioned a specific collaboration with the Shakespeare Festival. What can an orchestra like the Orlando Philharmonic do when a city like Orlando has so much other cultural stuff going on and they're pulled in different directions? What does a, an orchestra do to be more connected so they are less kind of um, insulated from everybody else? Yeah, well, actually, something that I realized when I when I first got here is actually the fill is so often outside of of the of the four walls of the of the of the halls um the amount of outdoor concerts that the philharmonic gives in orlando is just great the amount of times that the youth concerts that are happening in the plaza the, the amount of times that the school that the mu musicians from the philharmonic are in schools and being a part the number the 60,000 middle school kids that i uh, sorry high school uh, el elementary school kids that this that the orchestra plays for in the fall is so incredible. Which is an incredible project. Incredible. If people aren't, aren't aware, if you're listening to this, the is it Orange County and Seminole County yeah. or Orange County and Osage County, something like that? Yeah. Bring in every single student in yeah. grade three or four or something like yeah. that for for a concert. Yeah. In and it's like one it's month. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's more than almost every orchestra in the world does. And so that being said, we, we always can do more and we're going to do more and it just keeps on happening. I think, I mean, you know, the things that we've been talking about, the, the idea of like reaching out is, is, you know, it's in our mission. We have to do it. It's a way that the orchestra is continuously part of the fabric of a community. And obviously, you know, 40 years ago is a different world than it is today. Um, I think every arts organization and every art every uh, music organization band or anything has totally had to rethink their entire both business model and artistic missions over the last 20 years like oh wait how do we exist in this community you know i think i've heard the the facts that boston symphony was earning something like 30 percent of their revenue from record sales years and years ago in the in the heyday of recordings well that's not happening. If they earn a quarter of a percent, that would be shocking to me. I have no idea. I'm, now I'm just talking. What needs to happen to get to reach people, to get outside of ourselves? So constant, constant questions happening that actually I think the Philharmonic already is poised to do. Well, that's, that's excellent to hear. So speaking of things that the Orlando Philharmonic is, is poised to do, um, is, are there any like really kind of specific goals or projects that you have in mind for the future? And we've kind of talked about what you've, what you've observed since you've been here and some things that have surprised you about Orlando. What are some things that you hope to be able to accomplish in the, the future? Absolutely. Well, the 25th anniversary is uh, both, as, as I mentioned 
earlier, like has has these pillars of the classical tradition in it. But we are actually commissioning um, a handful of, of Orlando composers to to write music for next year's season, and that's that's a big thing actually. I think you know we have a responsibility to bring you know Thomas Addis and John Adams to town too, but it's also about about the community and where we actually are. But the two are not exclusive. You know, yes, Thomas Addis should be represented in every city. It's just that good. It's just some of the most incredible stuff ever. And that being said, we also should embrace the the brilliant composers that are always around us here. Um, actually, Stella Sung was at the Mahler concert last night, and I'm just so excited that she's writing a piece for us next year. Um, engaging the orchestra in actually creating its own things, whether it's, you know, different, you know, we're doing this uh, series called Women in Song now, and we're presenting um, a handful of concerts a year, which is embracing the idea that we're going to take um, a, a group of musicians from the Philharmonic and put them on stage with a singer-songwriter or a singer or a song, something like this. Um, sometimes it's, it has dance incorporated um, either in the small hall at the plaza or the larger hall at the plaza. And it's a way of actually like cross-pollinating the idea of, okay, this person has their audience, we have our audience, how do you do that? And it actually brings ourselves, the musicians, outside of what we might normally do and actually brings us a new possibility on stage. That kind of a thing are the you know, microcosm experiences that we're trying to have. Well, this is very exciting. I'm looking forward to hearing all that stuff and seeing all that stuff, I suppose I should say, for some of those <laughs> things uh, next season. So thank you so much for, for hanging out with me this Thanks morning. Thanks so much for talking. This was great. Thank you. Thanks again to the National Young Composers Challenge for supporting this episode of the show. If you're not familiar with National Young Composers Challenge, they sponsor an annual competition for composers age 18 and under in the United States, and the winners are a part of this incredible event that happens each fall where they come to Orlando and hear their music performed by a professional group of musicians, chamber ensemble, or orchestra, and get feedback live from the judges. There's some great audience interaction with the conductor, and everybody gets to see what goes into learning to be a composer and writing these crazy pieces that these students are writing. They are just incredibly talented. I can't say enough about the composers and the event itself. If you're in Orlando, please check it out, and if you know somebody that's eligible for the competition, please encourage them to enter. You can find more information at youngcomposerschallenge.org, and we thank them for their support of the arts in Central Florida, and specifically the Timuqua Presents podcast. If you would like to join them by sponsoring future episodes of the podcast, please get in touch with us at podcast at The executive producer of Timuqua Podcasts is Chris Belt. It was recorded and edited by me, David McDonald. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you at the show.